Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Uh, we're going to start today by checking in with our primarycarepod at gmail.com inbox. Uh, listener email. Uh, Dr. List, I know you like jokes so much, so here's a joke for you. What is pink, 12 inches long, and very hard in an orthopedic surgeon's hands? Answer, an EKG. Okay, let's start the podcast. The Primary Care Podcast is written and edited by a family physician for an audience of other physicians, nurse practitioners, physicians, assistants, residents, and medical students interested in primary care topics. This is not a podcast for patients and should not be used as medical advice. This is also a personal podcast produced on my own time and solely reflecting my personal opinions. Statements of this podcast do not reflect the views or policies of my employer, past or present, or any other organization with which I may be affiliated. Thank you for listening to the Primary Care Podcast. I'm Dr. Mark List, here to bring you the latest news, guidelines, and updates from primary care sources around the globe. Keeping it under 15 minutes long because you're in a hurry and I'm not that smart. Hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast. Today we're going to be talking about Prevnar, uh, conjugate pneumococcal vaccination. Specifically, what we're talking about was a not so recent, but a discussion on whether or not Prevnar is going to be recommended for adults going forward. I want to talk about this because I think that we will see this be a recommendation uh, in the future that Prevnar is no longer going to be a recommended vaccination for adults over the age of 65. Now, why is that? It's not because Prevnar doesn't work. In fact, Prevnar works very well. However, because we're doing such a good job of vaccinating children, the incidence of invasive pneumococcal disease and even cases of uh, pneumonia related to the subgroups in the Prevnar vaccination are going down dramatically. So this guideline change isn't a change because Prevnar stopped working. It's that it works so well in children that it doesn't benefit adults as much as we think it would. Now let's do a little history lesson. 2011, Prevnar was first approved for adults age greater than 50 to prevent pneumonia and invasive pneumococcal disease. Now, this was approved under the FDA's accelerated pathway, which allowed for earlier approval of products that, quote, provide meaningful therapeutic benefit over existing treatments for serious and life-threatening illnesses, unquote. So then there were several studies that proved it worked. Uh, There's a randomized control trial in the Netherlands uh, between 2008-2013. Uh, uh, adults age 65 who got the pneumonia vaccine versus a placebo vaccine, and they found a 45% efficacy in the vaccination against pneumococcal pneumonia and 75% effectiveness against vaccine type invasive pneumococcal disease. That is more than just pneumonia, things like bacteremia, sepsis, meningitis, etc. Uh, there were further immunogenic studies in the United States and Europe showing that Prevnar induced a better immune response or at least as good as our dear friend Pneumovax, and so it was approved. Interestingly, in their vaccination statement, the CDC, of course, says that they will continue to assess and imp the implementation and impact of this recommendation of Prevnar use in adults age 65, including coverage uh, with both Prevnar and Pneumovax, and the impact of Prevnar on vaccine-type invasive pneumococcal disease burden and community-acquired pneumonia due to serotypes found in the vaccination. Now, here's the really important part, though. And that is, even with this statement, they made a comment about the effect of Prevnar use among children. If similar to those uh, that were observed after the introduction of the seven-valent pneumococcal vaccination, 
quote, might further reduce the remaining burden of adult pneumococcal disease caused by PVC-13 types. Basically, if we do a good enough job with Prevnar-13 in kids, we might see a greater reduction and uh, elimination of any remaining burden of vaccine-specific serotypes of disease in adults. In fact, there was even a study discussing the likely probabilistic model of declining adult disease given the dropping disease burden based on pediatric vaccinations. In fact, using this in children would make it not very necessary to continue to vaccinate adults with the same vaccine. Given how effective it was at reducing the exposure to adults, given that we are reducing more and more disease burden within the community. So that was back in early 2000s, mid-2000s. So what's changed? What's new? Because that was 2014. So fast forward now to June 26th of 2019. The Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices changed their recommendation from recommending all adults receive Prevnar to changing it to a shared clinical decision-making, in effect, leaving it up to doctors and their patients, age 65 and older, to decide whether the individual patient should get a single dose of Prevnar 13. Now, this is a pretty dramatic change. Granted, we're still having the option to recommend it, but this is due to the remarkable success of the pediatric vaccination program. Direct vaccination remains the best tool to help prevent against pneumococcal disease, but the data is pretty clear that since we're doing a good job of vaccinating with Prevnar, adults aren't benefiting as much from the vaccination as we thought they were, given how good the pediatric vaccination program has done at preventing invasive pneumococcal disease. And so that's what we're left with, is that Prevnar works. It works really well in kids. We should continue to use it in kids. The question remains, will your adult patient benefit from Prevnar vaccination? And probably the better question is, will the community benefit from more and more people getting the Prevnar vaccination as adults? Based on the data, I'm not so sure that it's going to be beneficial to the individual patient for sure, as that number needed to treat climbs higher and higher and higher and higher. It no longer becomes a matter of, should everyone get this vaccination, but is it cost-effective to continue to provide this vaccination to all of our elder patients if it's preventing fewer and fewer cases of invasive pneumococcal disease and community-acquired pneumonia from the serotypes found in Prevnar? This data has not shown any change in our recommendation for Pneumovax, but specifically for Prevnar, I feel like this is going to be a discussion that we really need to start having with our patients based on this data, which is... Do we need to recommend that every single one of our adults get vaccinated with Prevnar? I've been doing it for every one of my patients. I've been having a discussion that says, hey, you know, the newest guidelines say that you might not need this vaccination. I always tell them that it certainly is not going to hurt them or harm them. The vaccination rates of, of harm from Prevnar in adults is incredibly low. Uh, it's almost insignificant, in fact. The benefits are very significant. It's just a matter of now cost analysis, and if our patients truly aren't going to benefit from this vaccination compared to what we expected them to benefit, is there still value in this vaccination? And I'm not so sure there is. 
So what am I doing? Instead of having a recommendation of, yeah, I think you should get the vaccine, I talk about it being an optional vaccination at this point based on the guidelines. I talk about Pneumovax still recommended as a pneumonia vaccination. Prevnar is an optional booster that people can have, and I frame it that conversation in that way. Now, I will say that since I've had this change in my practice over the last month, anecdotally, people really haven't changed their opinion. If the doctor says I should get this vaccination because the benefits far outweigh the risks, and I still think they do, even if the benefits are small, the risks are nearly negligible. Most of my patients with shared decision-making are still choosing to get the vaccination just because everyone's heard of pneumonia, they've had friends that have had pneumonia, they want to do everything they can to protect themselves. However, there have been some people who, after we've talked about it, they say, you know what, on second thought, I don't think I'm going to get this done. And based on the data, that's probably okay. And that's all I really have to say about that. Now, we only talked for this for about eight minutes because it's a pretty simple topic. Vaccinations work. They work so well that we don't need to revaccinate the adult population as we're taking disease out of the community. So I want to switch topics and throw at the end of this discussion uh, a couple of other little fun topics that shouldn't take too long to discuss. The next topic I want to discuss is how many steps do your patients need to live longer and healthier lives? We know that exercise can be broken down per week into about two and a half hours per week. It can be broken down into any number of uh, minutes at a time or hours at a time. It can come in five minute increments and come in two and a half hour increments, but that seems to be the cutoff for mortality benefit. But how many steps per day? In the age of the smartphone, in the age of the accelerometers and pedometers, is there a step count that statistically has benefit more than other step counts? You know, historically, if you've ever had a, a one of these devices, they'll set a goal on the smartphone or on your Fitbit of 10,000 steps per day. And you get a little reward and a little buzz every time you hit that, and that seems to be the goal. But is that 10,000 steps actually statistically evidence-based? The answer is, not surprisingly, no. You do not need 10,000 steps. This study comes from JAMA, Internal Medicine. This was published in May 29th of 2019, so fairly recent. What did the article show? Well, they followed 16,000 women with the mean age of 72 years, so an older cohort. They followed their steps per day for four years. Now, they placed these women into quartiles based on their total steps per day. The least active group averaged 2,700 steps per day. Second quartile was 4,400 steps per day. Next quartile, 5,900. And the most active quartile was an average of 8,400 steps per day. Sorry, median, not average. Now, they adjust the data for any confounders such as age, smoking, all comorbidities that may have significantly uh, impacted these women's health outcomes. And they found that mortality declined with increasing steps after, compared to that lowest quartile. So compared to the lowest quartile of 2,700 steps, even walking 4,400 steps was associated with a relative risk reduction of 46%. So pretty significant mortality benefit just from going from the most inactive 
to only 4,400 steps per day. Now, the next quartile up, adding another 1,500 steps per day only brought you to a 53% reduction compared to the inactive group. And even the highest quartile was at, four, was at 8,400 steps. That only brought you to a relative risk reduction of 66%. So the difference between the 4,400 steps and the 8,400 steps was only about a 20% risk reduction. Now, over the four years, only 3% of women died in the study. So we're talking about a very low absolute risk reduction for all these groups, less than 1%. However, we're not talking about a medication or a treatment or anything significant. This is just what is the effect of exercise on mortality? So an absolute risk reduction of even around 1% or under 1% has significant community benefits. And unsurprisingly, exercise lowered mortality. Now, I think the big take-home of the study is that this goal of 10,000 steps per day is absolutely not based in science. As we know with the amount of time that we're needed to exercise per week, there seems to be a huge cutoff between being sedentary and doing anything, right? In the studies, when it comes to time, we know that there's a huge jump from being completely sedentary and not getting any exercise per week to getting even an hour per week of exercise, per week of exercise. And that benefit tends to kind of still increase, increase until about two and a half hours a week. And then really, there's no benefit after this. In this study, there is no benefit after 7,500 steps per day. So you really don't get much for your returns if you start trying to push it past that 7,500 steps per day. What does this mean? Well, exercise is important, duh. And I think this pushes the fact that we don't need to hit 10,000 steps per day. There is not much benefit to over 7,500 steps per day, at least in our older population. And it's far more important to get people to not be sedentary than it is to make them hit the maximum. At least in the geriatric population. Again, based on the study, it's really hard to apply something with a mean age of 73 to 33-year-old females, but I think this is at least reassuring that it's in line with our other recommendations based on time. So go forth, fellow practitioners. Now armed with the knowledge that Prevnar might not be as effective in adults as we thought it was, but it's still a good vaccination just better for kids. And you might not need those 10,000 steps. So how'd we do today? Enjoy what you're listening to? Any suggestions on topics for the podcast or recommendations of articles, please send them to me at primarycarepod at gmail.com. That's all one word, primarycarepod at gmail.com. We'll also take any comments, questions, or concerns about the episode. If you want me to read your comment or question on the next episode, I can certainly throw them in. Please include whether you want to that comment or question to be anonymous or credited with your name. And so we'll wrap up another episode saying thank you for listening to the Primary Care Podcast. This has been Dr. Mark List reminding you, you don't need to stay up all night to stay up to date. Thanks and have a great day.